1: I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Baton Rouge got its name from a French explorer who led an exploration party up the Mississippi River and saw what has been described as a 30-foot red pole, a Baton Rouge, Mm. (laughs) and it was adorned with fish bones. The explorer later discovered the pole was erected to delineate two different tribal hunting grounds. The city has served as Louisiana's state capital since 1849. Baton Rouge is strategically located on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. So unlike the larger city of New Orleans, a business district was developed that was safe from the annual seasonal flooding the state always experiences. It also has the distinction of having been ruled by seven different governments the French, British, and Spanish in the colonial era, the Republic of West Florida in 1810, as a United States territory and as a state, and as a Confederate state during the American Civil War. Baton Rouge is now a major industrial, petrochemical, medical, and research center and is the location of Louisiana State University, the largest institution of higher education in the state. It is also the location of Southern University, a member of the historically black university and college system. In 2009, an alum of Southern University, who was on the path to great success, was derailed by a betrayal she did not see coming.
2: Greg Harris was frantic. His wife of just over one year, Shakita Tate, did not come home the night before. Late hours were not unusual for her because his wife was a rising star in the legal field and she was working hard to keep her momentum going. Shakita was determined to rise above her beginnings. She and her six siblings were raised by her grandmother. Her father had never been in the picture and her mother was a drug addict. Her grandparents lived in a small house in a neighborhood that consisted mostly of abandoned, boarded-up homes and money was understandably tight. Shakita was outspoken and opinionated from a very early age, and her grandfather always told her that with her mouth, she needed to be either a preacher or a lawyer. Shakita was smart and driven from an early age, and it was no surprise when she became the first person in her family to go to college. After graduating, she took her grandfather's advice and was accepted at the prestigious Southern University Law Center. When she graduated from law school, she began clerking at a local law firm while studying for the bar and passed the bar on her very first try. Prem Burns was a colleague and said Shikita was someone who would speak her mind and did not conform to what was expected of how female attorneys should dress in court. Sometimes she would show up in a prim business suit, and other times she would be in stilettos with spiky hair. That's pretty funny. I think it's awesome.
1: I know. I know one other lawyer who used to do that. If she were prosecuting somebody who had hurt a prostitute, now called sex workers, she would dress up in short, hoochie-hoochie skirts and wear high heels and go crazy with her hair and her point to the jury, and she would say, it doesn't matter what she did. She is still a human being, and she has no less value than you and I. That's awesome. I know. I would be like, I'm sorry, I don't have an outfit. Exactly.
2: <laughs> I'm going to pull it down a little bit shorter over my butt, or a little exactly. longer over my butt. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Exactly. <laughs> Please don't stare at my boobs. <laughs> What Prem Burns also said is that there was one judge who was a female, and the judge called Shakita into her chambers and told her that she needed to dress differently in her courtroom. Wow. Prem described Shakita as growing into a formidable force in court, walking into a courtroom, and looking like she owned the place. In her personal
1: life, Shakita was a newlywed. According to a Dateline NBC episode entitled Shining Star, she met her husband Greg while driving. Now this story cracks me up. Shakita was driving a Corvette, and Greg was driving a Mercedes, and he cut her off in traffic. Greg's brother Mike was with him and said Shakita was honking her horn at Greg, and you could hear her yelling from her car.
2: And (laughs) you could probably see gestures she
1: might have been making with her
2: hand. Exactly. (laughs) Or is that just me?
1: So she pulls up next to him, and they see each other, and they start smiling. And like little heart eyes were floating out. (laughs) Exactly. Apparently it blossomed into romance, like... Bump, bump, love is in the air. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it was love at first sight for both of them. (laughs) Greg Harris did well in the construction business. Their romance moved quickly, and Shakita moved into his home in Baker, which was a suburb about 30 to 40 minutes away from her office in Baton Rouge. They dated for about two years before they were married in a small ceremony on February 8th of 2008. Shakita was very successful during her first few years as an attorney, and after winning a $500,000 jury verdict, she started her own practice. That's pretty dang studly. No kidding. So she began renting space at the National Life Insurance Building a few blocks away from the court complex in downtown Baton Rouge. And by the way, Cap, this was a building that was predominantly rented by
2: attorneys. Which makes sense if it was right by the court complex. Yes,
1: yes. Shakita was all about family and friends. She brought her legal assistant, Leslie Hookfin, from her former firm with her on this new adventure and hired her sister, Danita, to help her as an administrative assistant.
2: Shakita chose criminal law as the focus of her practice. She represented some hardcore criminals and was always looking to work on high profile cases that were covered on the news and in the newspapers. Her clients included killers, gangbangers, and druggies. And knowing Shakita's client base made Greg all the more concerned when she did not come home on the night of February 19, 2009. When her legal assistant, Lessee, went home at about 5.30 p.m., Shakita assured her that she was prepping for the defense on a double homicide case but was only going to work for another couple of hours. Shakita wound up working a little longer than she intended and called Greg about 7.30 p.m. and asked him to bring her something to eat. Remember, these are before the days of Uber Eats and... Yeah, Door exactly. and all that fun stuff. Exactly. So he picked up a hamburger and some French fries from McDonald's for her and went to her office in Baton Rouge. Greg said he saw quite a few of the building's tenants when he was there that night because Shakita had a client who was coming in to leave some money. So he went down to the lobby to get that for her and to pick up some paperwork. Greg said Shakita told him she had more work to do and one more client to see. So he went home and this was about 830 p.m.
1: Greg fell asleep soon after he got home but woke up at about 3 a.m. and saw that Shakita was not home. He tried calling her office several times to no avail, then called her sister Danita to see if maybe Shakita was staying with her for the night. Danita had not heard from her. At the crack of dawn, Greg drove to Baton Rouge to the National Life Insurance Building and grew even more concerned. He saw that her car, a Hummer 2, was parked in the same space it was parked in when he was there eight hours earlier. He could see the lights were on in her office several floors up, but the building was locked and he could not get in. The National Life Building automatically locked its doors at 5.30 p.m. and did not reopen them until 7 a.m. The only way you could get in between those hours was if a person let you in or if you had a key card. Since Greg could not get in, he called 911. He told the dispatch that his wife never came home the night before and he needed to get into the building. Before police could respond, Greg saw a patrol car driving by and flagged the officer down. An office worker let the police officers in. Once upstairs, the patrol officers quickly declared Shakita's office a crime scene. Shakita was lying on the floor of her office with a law book next to her and long strands of black hair in her left hand. She clearly put up a fight, as evidenced by the bloody smears on the walls and the fact that her office was in complete disarray. Papers and files were everywhere, and items were knocked off her bookshelves and her desk. At first glance, it did not look like anything was taken. There was no murder weapon. No bloody handprints or footprints, no blood in the elevator or on the elevator buttons or in the lobby.
2: Veteran Baton Rouge homicide detectives Elvin Howard and Chris Johnson arrived at the scene. They saw Greg first. He was so upset that he was screaming at a uniformed officer, so he was put into the back of a patrol car to help him calm down. Detectives asked the patrol officer to take Greg to the station. As the husband, of course, they would want to talk to him. Prem Burns, the colleague we mentioned earlier, was a highly regarded prosecutor and the first assistant district attorney. On her way into work that morning, she heard about a murder at a law office close to the court buildings and wondered who it was. When she heard it was at the National Life Insurance Building, she had a sinking feeling that it was Shakita. She called her boss, the district attorney, and told him she wanted the case. He agreed, and Ms. Burns immediately headed to the National Life Insurance Building and Shakita's office. When she saw Shakita's body, she noticed that Shakita had little slipper socks on her feet the way most women did when they have to work late because, uh, yeah, why would you wear heels any longer than you have to? True. Ms. Burns also observed that Shakita was still wearing very expensive jewelry. She still had her diamond engagement ring and wedding band, stud earrings that looked like diamonds, and she was wearing a Tag Heuer watch. Which, if you haven't priced those lately, they're pricey. Yes. The women's watches start around $1,500 to $2,000. Yeah, they're
1: super expensive.
2: The car keys to Shakita's Hummer were also in her purse. She, too, saw the strands of black hair on Shakita's left hand. And as crime scene technicians processed the scene, they realized that Shakita's Gucci wallet was missing from her purse. Homicide detectives Howard and Johnson. I which, loved Howard Johnson's, which,
1: <laughs> which cracks me up. Went back to the station to talk to Greg. Greg waited in the interrogation room for two hours before the detectives got back to the office. He did not ask for an attorney, and he was forthcoming in answering the detectives' questions after he was mirandized. Greg offered to allow police to search their home and cars, take swabs, and any other evidence they needed. He said he wanted to do everything he could to help detectives catch his wife's killer. Lessie Hookfin, Shakita's legal assistant, told investigators Shakita would notify her if a client would be coming in for a meeting after hours. And Shakita did not tell Hookfin that any clients were coming in on February 19th. She also told them that there were no client appointments even scheduled for late in the day on February 19th. Hookfin said that when she left the office at 5.30 p.m. that night, Shakita told her that she would only be there a couple more hours.
2: A few hours after finding Shakita's body, police got what they hoped was a lead in the case. They received a call from a woman who was driving down Gardier Lane. This is a street that is in one of the highest crime areas in Baton Rouge and reported finding a Gucci wallet on the side of the road the night before. The caller looked inside and saw Shakita's driver's license But what was most surprising is that the woman actually knew Shakita. What a small world, man. No kidding. Seriously. Shakita had given a speech at her child's school and made a strong impression on her.
1: I'm sure she was giving one of those inspirational speeches like, if I can do it, you can do it.
2: And there's no better person to have done it, especially when you think about how outgoing she was and extroverted and and accomplished. Agreed. Unexpectedly, though, Shakita's ID and credit cards were all inside the wallet. Police were confident they would find Shakita's killer, because Baton Rouge has a lot of crime cameras on poles in the downtown area, and traffic cameras on every signal light. They believed they would get really lucky because Shakita's office was on a corner, and outside of her building, there were two cameras that covered the front entrance. One camera was about a block away, but unfortunately, the camera that was right in front of her office door was knocked out by a recent storm and had not been put back online yet. Shakita's father-in-law said that he admired her courage But often wondered about the kind of clients that came with her line of work. As a criminal lawyer, you deal with criminals, so you are going to be dealing with bad people, and he knew that if anyone asked Shakita for help, she would help them. Shakita's brother in law, Mike, said that he could not understand how someone could do that to her. Police began working on creating a timeline of Shakita's last day and combing through Shakita's client roster to search for possible suspects. This was a tough crowd. And investigators had a lot of possible suspects to check. The two who stood out the most were Danaco and Darius Duhart. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there was a third brother, Denard. Wow. How do you like yell at your kids when you're angry with them and get all their names right? I know. Impossible. Exactly. Impossible. Shakita represented Danaco in the past when he, his brother, and a third man were arrested and charged with beating and burning a man to death. First-degree murder charges against the Duhart brothers and the other man were eventually dropped after several key witnesses were shot to death. I'm thinking they're good suspects. But Shakita
1: was actually involved in a case with one of the three. I don't remember which one. It was Danaco. Okay. At the the time of her murder.
2: At the time. She actually, when she died on Friday night, she had a court appearance that Monday. Mmm. The police looked closely into the brothers. Danaco was in jail at the time of the murder and Darius was eventually ruled out as a viable suspect.
1: Several days into the investigation, homicide detectives received an anonymous call suggesting that Shakita was involved in a lesbian love triangle with two of her clients. The anonymous caller gave investigators the names of the women, and according to Crime Watch Daily told police that she was eating at a Chili's restaurant and overheard one of the women in the next booth saying that she had killed Shakita. According to the caller, that same woman had noticeable scratches on her body. Police wondered if this would explain the clump of hair found in Shakita's hand. So Howard and Johnson, again, I love those two names. They had really good chocolate (laughs) shakes. Exactly. Questioned the two women the caller told them about. Both women insisted they were working with Shakita to adopt a child and thought the world of her, but were not romantically or sexually involved with her. Detectives did not find any scratches, and when it came to the hair, one had short hair and the other wore her hair in braids. To cap it off, they both had alibis for the time of the crime. Forensic investigators were able to get scrapings from underneath Shakita's fingernails, and it came back with two different male DNA. One was Greg, and the other was unidentified. They also did an analysis on the clump of hair in Shakita's hand and determined that it was fake hair and came from a weave. Police began to think that the killer was male, but planted the hair to steer police toward automatically assuming the killer was a woman. This made sense for a number of reasons, especially the fact that if Shakita grabbed the attacker's hair and was pulling on it, it would likely be clutched tightly in her hand rather than being laid on top of her hand like it was. Also, although anything was possible, detectives believed the scene was too violent for the killer to be a woman.
2: Sexist.
1: This case reminded me of that Johnny Cash song, Big River. Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River (laughs) Queen, roll it on. Now take that woman on down to New Orleans, New Orleans. Can you picture that Johnny Cash song in your head?
2: I can. Has that been going through your head the whole time we've been doing this?
1: <laughs> it totally has. And, and I couldn't even tell you, like, the other lines. I just remember that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Now, I can't top Kathy singing, and so your ears don't bleed, I'm not going to.
1: <laughs> I think their ears are already bleeding. <laughs>
2: As police were coming up with scenarios as to who the killer would be, they knew the person was good enough or lucky enough to be able to exit the building without leaving any blood evidence. And despite having committed a brutal attack, the perpetrator was able to focus enough with all of the adrenaline running through their system to leave a clump of hair to hope police focused on only looking for a woman killer. And detectives assumed that leaving the wallet in a high crime area was done knowing that it was very likely that the person who found the wallet on Gardeer Lane would try and use the credit cards. And then when police tracked down the video, as they obviously would, of the person who used the credit cards, the investigators would then focus solely on them as the main suspect in Shakita's murder. When investigators looked into who Shakita was as a person to see who might want to harm her, they found a woman who was loved, respected, and admired. As a criminal defense attorney, she was at ease in the spotlight, happy to talk to reporters, very extroverted, but she was also down to earth and knew what it was like to come from less fortunate circumstances. But investigators found that with the good came the bad. She's not just like me, who's super awesome and nice and has no bad. She's like (laughs) Kathy. She was hot-tempered and was extremely aggressive. (laughs) Bad
1: influence? Only if it's warranted. (laughs) Not even then.
2: Seriously? (laughs) (laughs) Investigators wondered if Shakita had maybe pushed someone too hard or too far. Shakita's sister, Danita, said she could be sunny one moment and a Gulf Coast storm the next, calling her a force to be reckoned with. Since the anonymous caller about the lesbian love triangle was so insistent, but it had been determined that it was not true, detectives turned their attention to tracking down the anonymous female caller. They traced the call to the town of Denton, Texas which is just north of Dallas and about 500 miles away from Baton Rouge. Detectives Howard and Johnson drove to Denton to track her down. They went to the address they had for the cell phone, but no one answered, so they called the phone number from which the tip call was made. A young woman answered the phone, but initially said the phone was not hers and belonged to a friend. Detective Howard thought he recognized the voice, so he asked her if she knew Shakita Tate. The detectives were stunned when the woman said yes. Shakita was married to her brother, Greg.
1: Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you.
2: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
1: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
2: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
1: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today
0: So now detectives were
1: wondering whether Greg was trying to plant false leads. So they turned the spotlight on him. When they dug a little deeper into Greg's background, they found that six weeks before Greg and Shakita were to be married in February of 2008, Shakita called 911 because Greg was hitting her. She said on the call that he was choking her and she thought her arm was broken. When police arrived, Shakita and Greg accused each other of doing the hitting. They both had red marks and scratches, so both were arrested and charged with domestic violence. Shakita's charges, however, were dropped. Greg's were not, and he wound up pleading not guilty and was released from jail pending trial. When Greg was initially questioned by the police after Shakita's death, so that's the next day, He offered to let police search his house and his cars. After detectives heard the 911 call, they decided to take Greg up on this offer. When police searched the house, at first it looked like nothing was amiss. Shakita's sister had told them that Shakita was in the process of leaving Greg and had already rented her own apartment, but detectives did not see any boxes being packed or items that had been boxed up to be moved. Once they looked closer, detectives noticed small droplets of blood smeared on the walls next to the faucets of the bathroom sink and in the kitchen. They also noticed blood on a Clorox bottle that was on the kitchen counter. DNA analysis showed that the blood on the sink, walls, and Clorox bottle contained a mix of Shakita's and Greg's DNA. DNA. Another very interesting find was a digital audio recorder that detectives found in Greg's closet. It held a recording of Greg and Shakita having a shouting match, and it sounded like a couple that was splitting up their possessions.
2: So what this was, it was a very small audio device. So it wasn't like some big audio recording setup that he had in a closet or cameras or anything like that. There's
1: nothing weird with like holes in the walls that he could record them in bed or anything, because that's totally what I thought when I read
2: this. Well, but that's just your closet. Not everybody (laughs) does that. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it was just a small audio recorder, kind of, well, bigger than the tape recorders in the days of yore, but it was just a small audio recorder that had been kind of thrown into the back of the closet. Was
1: there any explanation as to whether this was done on purpose, this recording? Because it's so bizarre to me. Who would record this? There
2: wasn't an explanation of it, but the assumption is it was done on purpose because why would you have that if you weren't doing it intentionally? But who? Well, my guess is it's Shakita.
1: If I were a gambling woman, I'd say the same thing, but I did not read anything that explained.
2: They had bigger fish to fry. I don't think this was a big part of the evidence. But isn't that, it's interesting. I do think it's interesting. Yeah. Inside Greg's vehicle, they found safety glasses under the driver's seat. Remember, Greg worked in construction. There was some blood splattered on the lenses, and Greg told police that he cut his finger at work. The company had a requirement that any injury that drew blood on a construction site had to be reported to management, no matter how small the injury. When investigators talked to Greg's supervisors, they said that Greg did not report anything. Detectives also went over Greg's timeline. Where did he go, when did he go, and what did he do? He told police that he went to Baton Rouge to bring Shakita dinner since she was working late, and said he picked up McDonald's. When police verified it, they found that Greg did in fact get food from McDonald's, but he purchased a hamburger and french fries in Baker, where they lived, which, as you may recall, is 30 to 40 minutes away from Shakita's office, and detectives wondered what man would bring their wife cold, fast food when there was a McDonald's three blocks from Shakita's office. Exactly.
1: Does he not understand that you have to eat McDonald's french fries hot? (laughs) Or they're
2: garbage. Yes. Same with all the food.
1: I'm ashamed to say I love McDonald's french fries, but for
2: the love of God, if they're cold, they're disgusting. Absolutely. Greg also originally told detectives that he drove straight home after leaving Shakita's office. Now, when they questioned him, they reminded him that not only could they track his cell phone, but also that Baton Rouge has crime cameras and stoplight cameras everywhere. Then they asked him... When was the last time he was on Gardeer Lane? Greg hesitated for a second and then said it just so happened that he went there after leaving Shakita's office. Why? Well, he told detectives that he liked being bulked up and was on steroids, and that was where his steroid dealer lived. So Greg swung by, that's in quotes, on his way home. The reason swung by was in quotes is because Gardeer Lane is 20 minutes south of Shakita's office, and his home in Baker was 40 minutes north. With this information, Greg put himself in the neighborhood where Shakita's wallet was left on the night that it was done.
1: He really needed those steroids, apparently.
2: And when they talked to the steroid dealer, the dealer said, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm not a steroid dealer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have an alibi witness. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> While in the interrogation room, detectives ordered Greg to remove his shirt to check for scratches. He had scratches all over his back, consistent with a woman's nails digging into him. Now, Kath, as you know, one of the things that I watched as we were preparing for this episode was Dateline NBC's episode Shining Star. Right. So they actually showed video of the interrogation between Detectives Howard Johnson and Greg. (laughs) So (laughs) I did see some
1: of that video as well.
2: (laughs) It was awesome. So first of all, they played bad cop, bad cop. Totally. No good cop in this. They were standing up. They were screaming at him. But one of the things they said is, after finding the Clorox bleach in the kitchen with the blood on it, they asked Greg what he used it for. Right. <laughs> and he said, well, when he went home that night after leaving Shakita's, he had to do his laundry. And they said, what laundry did you do? And he said, you know, khaki pants and a couple pairs of khaki pants and, and a couple shirts. And that was it. And Detective Johnson said, you use bleach to wash your khakis? And Greg's response was, uh, yeah, I always wash my khakis with bleach. Totally could have auditioned for Valley Girl, but it was hysterical. Okay, first of all,
1: (laughs) (laughs) when I saw the detectives, I was like, oh, my God, if God forbid one of my relatives was dead. These are the detectives that you would want on your side.
2: Absolutely. I mean,
1: they were so aggressive. Here's what I felt like. I felt like this guy was in a room with two people very familiar to him. It was almost like his brothers were accusing him. The way their demeanor was so familiar and they were standing up and they were exaggerating. They were getting in and his they were face. leaning in his face. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was it was so like they were just going at him. But when he talked about the laundry and in my head, I'm like, oh, he's never done a load of laundry in his life. Exactly. He you doesn't... know what your khakis would look like yeah, if you bleached yeah, like, And buddy, what about all the other shirts? Exactly. Your clothes would look horrible
2: exactly. <laughs> if everything had bleach, you know. Well, and then Detective Johnson did the other trick where it was. What are you, a serial killer? And he's like, no, I never killed anybody. And he said, oh, so just just your your wife? wife? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't kill my wife. Yes, you did. I didn't kill my wife. Yes, you did. (laughs) And finally, you're like, fine, okay, I did. Right. And he didn't cave, but I I would have. I would have been like, yeah, you're right, man. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) It was clear now that the evidence was pointing to Greg. Police decided to hold him in jail on an outstanding warrant from his arrest for domestic violence in the weeks before he and Shakita were married. That
1: was the the arrest for the 911 call.
2: Correct. What had happened is he did plead not guilty, as we said, but he did that on March 6th of 2008. But there was a pretrial conference two days later, and he didn't show up for it. So an arrest warrant was issued.
1: Ah, yes. The warrant was issued. OK, so now they're like, we're going to
2: satisfy that warrant now. Come on in. You're, you're going to be in custody. Right. They did not let him leave the station after that. Got it. And I think it. obviously they just now needed to look into all of the stuff that he had said and they had found and right. how many wives he'd killed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Greg's family could not believe the police suspected him and they believed that there was no way Greg had killed Shakita. His brother Mike said that not only is Greg not violent, but that Shakita and Greg were working things out. As for the tip about the love triangle, Greg's sister anonymously called in. Greg's father said he was the one who got the information from another attorney and he was not trying to throw the police off. It was really a concern for him. Even Danita, Shakita's sister, said she could not see Greg as the killer. According to Greg's father, shortly after Shakita was murdered, someone tried to kill Greg. A shooter came up to Greg's bedroom window at about 3:30 in the morning and fired 5 shots inside. Thankfully, Greg had fallen asleep that night on the couch and was not in his bedroom. Greg's father thought the shooter was the same person who killed Shakita. Almost one month after Shakita was murdered, Greg Harris was charged with second-degree murder of his wife. His bail was set at $500,000. He pled not guilty and bailed out. Trial began in March of 2011 with State District Judge Trudy White presiding. Now, as we said previously, the prosecutor was Shakita's colleague, Prem Burns, who asked for the case. The prosecution's focus was the substantial amount of circumstantial evidence that they compiled against Greg. Investigators learned from Shakita's family and former girlfriends that Greg had a bad history with women in his life because he had significant control issues. And Kath, I had read somewhere that with his girlfriends, like if they didn't clean the house well enough, if they didn't, like he was just super controlling and super particular, and it had a penchant for going south. Can you imagine why? I can't imagine why.
2: What, I couldn't use sarcasm and you could? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it also makes sense then that he'd never done laundry before, yes, and that's ex- why he that, said he used bleach.
1: <laughs> I was like, yeah, exactly. You're totally right. Greg's former girlfriend said that he had a Jekyll Hyde personality and would flip out on them for no reason. The prosecution admitted evidence of his prior violent relationships with women— and played the 911 call Shakita made six weeks before her wedding to Greg.
2: An episode of Crime Watch Daily also covered this case, and this is an audio of the 911 call that was included in their episode.
1: I have all units in law complain that her fiancé
0: is beating her. Help me! Help me! Help me! He choked me! And I think, I think he broke my arm.
1: So, Kath... That 911 call was made two weeks before they were married.
2: It was made six weeks before they were married. Thank
1: you. And she was murdered a year after their marriage. Right. At the 11-month mark, she was planning on moving out, right?
2: Right. The prosecution saw that she had rented an apartment in January.
1: Okay. And so the detectives believe that it was the renting of the apartment, which they think was originally hidden from him.
2: Right. There wasn't any evidence of moving. Okay,
1: I see what you're saying. There was no boxes packed. Right, exactly. And who, was it her sister who told the police officers that? It was. Okay.
2: Shakita's death seemed like a very personal attack. Stabbings are a very personal way to kill someone, and she was not stabbed three or four times. She was stabbed 43 times, and her face was cut repeatedly as if to intentionally disfigure her. That is hatred. Oh, absolutely. This killing was overkill, with some of the stab wounds occurring after her death.
1: This guy was in a rage.
2: Prosecutors also told the jury that Greg was desperate for money. Two weeks before Shakita was killed, Greg's mortgage loan was placed in default for non-payment. The day before Shakita was killed, Greg asked the executive vice president of the company where he worked for a loan from the company. Greg claimed he needed money to help his brother because his brother was charged with murder. The company refused to give Greg any money due to the economy at the time and because Greg already had an outstanding loan with them. Greg's mother did testify at trial that none of her sons were charged with murder in February 2009.
1: You know, I think that if I were asking for a loan for somebody, I'd come up with something better that, you know, that my brother needs the money because he's charged with murder.
2: I, I would think you could, too. I
1: think I could find something better to lie about.
2: And something so easy to find. Yeah, it, totally. Three months prior, in November of 2008, with Greg at her side, Shakita purchased a $250,000 life insurance policy naming Greg as one of the beneficiaries. He would receive approximately $60,000 in the event of Shakita's death. And also, as you'll recall, shortly prior to her death, Shakita won a $500,000 judgment in one of her civil cases.
1: Now, Kath, I have no idea how they do in Louisiana, but if that's a personal injury judgment... Customarily, lawyers get a third to 40 percent, probably 40 percent of it went to trial. So he's looking at her take of $200,000-ish. And again, I'm not sure if they have community property laws, but if they're married, I know he's thinking, oh, that becomes my money.
2: The prosecution argued that Greg was angry but cool and calculated. They said that Greg brought the hair to the crime scene to plant in her hand The same calculation was done with dropping Shakita's wallet on Gardere Lane. Misdirection was Greg's M.O. The prosecution also weighed in on the claim that somebody had shot into Greg's bedroom trying to kill him, and they said they believe he fired shots into his own bedroom to make it look like he was the target of the actual killer.
1: Also, the camera that was a block from Shakita's office did not show anyone entering the office after Greg left around 8.30 p.m., and that was admitted at trial. Lance Ungleby was Greg Harris's defense attorney and opened by saying that nothing put Greg at the site of the killing. Police did not find a lot of blood in either his house or his car, arguing that, based on the murder scene, there would
2: have been much more blood found. They also did not find any fingerprints, any blood trails, nor did they find the murder weapon. I know. I'm actually
1: surprised about the fact
2: that there weren't any prints or shoe prints or anything on the way down. Exactly. Right. Right.
1: The defense argued the hair was not a plant, but rather suggested a female killed Shakita, arguing that the police did not look into that possibility. Between that and the amount of cleanup that would have been required, the defense believed that the murder would have required two people. The defense also said investigators did not look closely enough at Shakita's client list nor did they try to determine the unknown male DNA that was found under Shakita's fingernails. Uncleby said that Denard Duhart, the brother of Denaco and Darius, was the actual perpetrator. Plus, Denard lived by Gardere Lane, where the wallet was found. The trial lasted 16 days. On Saturday, April 9, 2011, after three and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found Greg Harris guilty of manslaughter by a vote of 11 to 1. The prosecution and the defense were stunned because neither side argued for a lesser conviction of manslaughter. The jury said that the reason they decided to convict for manslaughter is they just thought that something happened when Greg was at Shakita's office that night and something just got out of hand. You know, it was funny, Kath, I was reading an article and one of the jurors was quoted in a newspaper as saying something like, we believed that she either yelled at him or hit him. And so he did not take the stand in his own defense. And I was blown away when I read that. And basically, it seems to me, and and I I don't have all the transcripts, as you know, the jurors did not want him to be convicted of second degree murder, which was the charge against him. So they just found for manslaughter. It's almost like they filled in the blanks and made stuff up.
2: Well, and I was going to say, I don't look at it as an outsider as saying something just happened 43 times with a knife. But I also don't know what all they were considering. I don't know what was being said in the jury room. So I'm not going to second guess them. But you're like, but I will. (laughs) (laughs) But But I'm going (laughs) to. But but on the podcast, I think that's what you all want to (laughs) hear.
1: You know, but we do know that evidence was admitted about. Shakita's temper,
2: but we also know that as part of the nine one one call, when Greg had attacked her, he mm. had marks on him as well, and we don't know right. How and those they marks... were both originally
1: arrested, right? Exactly.
2: Yeah. So maybe the
1: jury was just thinking. I, I don't know. Yeah. They, they clearly filled in the blanks about what they thought happened in the office. The sentence for manslaughter was left to the discretion of the judge, with the possible sentence ranging from a few months to forty years.
2: And you know what's interesting in Louisiana is. And in many places, you'll get a a sentence of, like, five to 10 years or five to life or whatever it is. You cannot have a vague sentence there. It has to be a determinant sentence where they actually give a number. Right.
1: Judge White sentenced Greg Harris to 40 years without the possibility of parole. Now, here's what's interesting. Both the prosecution and defense attorneys were super confused about how they could come to manslaughter charges. And when I was reading the articles, the attorneys were quoted as saying, we do not know what the jury did with these responsive verdicts. And I'm like, what the heck's a responsive verdict? But in Louisiana, there's actually a code section which tells you what the appropriate verdict is for certain criminal charges. And so in Louisiana, under second-degree murder, an appropriate verdict could be guilty, guilty of manslaughter, guilty of negligent homicide, and not guilty. So he was charged with second degree murder. The judge gave jury instructions and included manslaughter, even though both attorneys said to reporters like, hey, we didn't even talk about manslaughter. You know, I think the defense attorney thought he was going to get off on murder, too. I think she believed he was going to be convicted on murder, too. But the jury was like, oh, well, we think it was the heat of the moment. And we
2: get to make the decision. Exactly. Well, and not only that, but I was surprised that she gave him the entire 40 years.
1: Yeah. And that's another thing the Court of Appeal said. Hey, look, you can give 40 years, but on a manslaughter, you have to give the possibility of parole. So the Court of Appeal amended the conviction and basically said, yeah, you get 40 years, but you have the possibility of parole.
2: Assistant District Attorney Prem Burns said with the sentence the judge had given him, he will be an old man and his life will be over by the time he's released. Although she wasn't happy with the manslaughter conviction, Prem Burns said she was happy that she was able to keep her promise to Shakita. Ms. Burns told Crime Watch Daily that before she left the crime scene that day, she leaned over and whispered to Shakita, I will make this right for you. I will do everything I can to make this right. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you liked us, And hopefully you did if you stayed this long. Exactly. Tell a friend. And follow us on our social media channels. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast.